right, welcome to Journey Through Scripture, day 258. Today we're going to be in Isaiah chapters 36 and 37, and the Galatians 2, 1 through 10. As you can hear, Katie is here with me playing in the background. Hi, Katie. <laughs> okay, <laughs> nothing's wrong when she makes those sounds. She just does that. But uh, my wife's actually in Texas today, so I'm watching uh, four of our five kids. Um, so definitely on KD duty. Okay, uh, let's begin with Isaiah 38. So um, now this is an interesting, interesting for several different reasons. Number one, Isaiah, as we have seen, is mainly a book of poetry. There are some prose sections that we've seen, but as any perusal through a decently uh, typeset English Bible will sh easily show, uh, it's mainly Hebrew poetry. Um, these chapters, and um, uh, also chapter 38 as well, is a chapter of prose, and it, it's narrative, and, and, and so much so that it's actually more or less verbatim lifted from the account of Sennacherib's invasion of Judah during Hezekiah's reign, um, all the way back from 1 Kings, like 18 and so on and so forth. So um, there, there are some really minor um, alterations. So, for example, in the first paragraph here, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, and by the way, I should probably mention there are questions as to whether or not um, that perhaps is an error, um, possibly in, in uh, copying. It, it uh, makes a little bit more sense chronologically to say it's his 24th year. It's just a change of two letters in the Hebrew, so, uh, but that need not detain us here. But this first chapter, right, talk is the summary about Sennacherib coming up against the fortified cities of Judah to take them, and he sends his Rabshakeh uh, with the great army, and they go to the uh, conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, which is interesting because that is uh, where the, back in chapter 7, verse 3, where Isaiah and his son She'ar Yashuv, a remnant, will return, uh, were, um, were stationed when you know he made that announcement, that prophecy, and uh, then comes out the uh, um, the Asher al Habayat, the, the 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 guy who's over the king's household, uh, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was given that role back in chapter twenty-two, you might recall, and Shebna, who is now a secretary. So apparently Shebna. Back in 22, as we saw, was um, denounced. So apparently, his position is demoted. If indeed that that uh, this shift takes place uh, after that, which seems to make sense, unless it's a much more complicated history between these two, um, these guys come out basically to talk to him. And uh, I guess, as I was saying, this account, this this thing is abbreviated. The wording is very is almost identical, but it's abbreviated compared to what we get in Second uh, Kings. Um, and the entire account from there on forth is basically uh, lifted verbatim from that, uh, with the exception of um, afterwards, in the passage we're going to be looking at tomorrow, uh, there, is, um, there is a little bit of rearrangement there. Uh, it's kind of difficult to tell exactly why. Um, plus, there is, I guess the big difference is there's this big uh, kind of psalm that ends the account in Isaiah. It ends Isaiah 38, uh, where Hezekiah basically praises the Lord 
uh, for um, his recovery, the recovery from sickness that he had. But of course, that's tomorrow. That's not going to detain us today. Um, I guess um, I, I feel like we've talked about this a lot in here. Okay, so 701 BC, uh, a couple years after Sennacherib takes the throne of Assyria and has to really um, stamp out a lot, a lot of these regional rebellions that crop up. And Hezekiah is very much the ringleader of that in Jerusalem. Now, I've also said that the uh, the one weird thing that placing a lot of the prophecies of Isaiah into the context of Hezekiah's reign poses is that in the historical books, Hezekiah is described as an exceedingly good king. Uh, but I just want to—I feel like I've explained these, this um, apparent discrepancy uh, uh, in the past, don't need to rehash everything, except to just remind everybody that what we do have in the Bible is a very selective telling. And so— Although um, it, uh, it 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 recounts some very good reforms that Hezekiah did, uh, particularly the uh, the Passover, you can recall in how how that's detailed in Second Chronicles, and also um, his reign in for in Second Kings is depicted as a very good reign. Um, you know, a lot of the the cultic reforms, the the, the religious reforms, and everything that he does. Even though that's the case, there's a lot of blank spots during his reign. And not only that, but, you know, there's um, some of Isaiah would have been directed towards other kings and stuff like that. So I think it's important just to keep that in mind that, you know, it's not as if we're given an exhaustive account of everything that every king did. So there's just a lot of question marks that we that we could have. But uh, we've also been seeing that a lot of the prophecies of Isaiah have have apparently been announcing that this would happen, and the scenario that Isaiah paints, of course, is that of an invading army coming and basically decimating Judah as part of God's judgment, and him preserving a remnant in order to, to survive, and then bringing something great out of that remnant, and that's essentially the idea. Um. I guess um, let's since we've since we've not um, since we've gone through this so much, I'm not going to go through this kind of like uh, verse for verse. Um, I do want to point out a couple things that maybe get a little bit of extra flavor in light of some of the things that Isaiah has been saying. So um, one thing that's interesting, I think, is that when the Rabshakeh comes to the to the wall of Jerusalem. And he's conversing with Eliakim and with Shebna and with Asaph, the recorder. Okay, um, if you look down in verse sixteen, where uh, the uh, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, is basically making an offer to the people who live in the city, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree and each one will drink the water of his own cistern. Um, until I take come and take you away to a land, your own land, a land of grain and wine and bread and vineyards, right? He's trying to he's trying to really sell this idea. Like it's not that bad of a thing to come out of the city and to defect to us. Do you want to stay here and be destroyed, or do you want to uh, prosper and have all these things? In light of some of the stuff we've been reading in Isaiah, this is kind of like I I think we could kind of read this as like a counterfeit, um, cheap version of the messianic promise because a lot of the future prosperity of of Judah that has been mentioned throughout the book of Isaiah is 
uh, people, you know, a, a flourishing land with people eating from the vines and from the and from the fig trees and and plenty of water flowing down and wine and, and all the great right all their crops are flourishing their their animals are flourishing and everything and here the um, should they defect and come to him he'll give them that and that's kind of the easy way right and they don't need to endure and and that requires no trust in the Lord. In fact, it, it requires a little bit of an acquiescence to some of the false theology that the Rob Shekha is throwing up, right? Like that, that um, isn't this the God whose altars Hezekiah has removed from throughout the land, right? Because he doesn't know that that's actually a good thing. Or, um, you know, have any of the gods of the other nations um, gone and and saved their people when we came up against them? Haven't I destroyed them? And how is Yahweh going to be any different to you, right? Like, basically, if you acquiesce to that and not listen to the message of Isaiah, then we're, then you can have all the things that God is promising you. We'll give them to you. And that, of course, is like very much like the temptation of that that we all encounter, right? Like, here and now, you can have uh, you you can have you can have blessing here and now um, if you if you turn from the Lord if you if you walk contrary to His ways if if you without having to go through the life of trusting and serving and giving yourself up to others um, that's essentially the temptation that many of us face. Another historical thing that I want to mention I don't think I talked about it in Second Kings but um, you remember how we've noted a bunch of times in in Isaiah the temptation to turn to Egypt and to trust in Egypt. And one of the things that I mentioned in Hezekiah's day was that the, the that temptation was very real because Egypt was in Judah fighting Assyria at this time. And indeed, we see that here. Uh, you see it in chapter 37, verses 8 and following. So the Rabshakeh goes back from Jerusalem and he comes comes to Sennacherib's army and they're fighting against Libna, it says, for the king for 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 he had heard that the king had left Lachish. So they lay waste to Lachish, they turn against Libna, and the king, we're told, heard concerning Terhaka of uh, King of Cush, he has set out to fight against you. And so, you know, so this other army is in the land now. Now We've been saying that this is Egypt, and here the king is called the king of Cush. This is actually a very interesting historical note, um, a surprising way in which the Bible is accurate, that um, that it doesn't call, call him the king of Egypt, although it could have. So what's going on? Well, basically throughout the entire history of Israel, Egypt is powerful, but it's not, but it's in a lot more disarray than it is at other eras, and they're in what is called the Third Intermediary Period. Well, um, Egypt has these occasionally occasional lows. You might recall it was an intermediate period when the Hyksos, those Semitic rulers, ruled Egypt during the time of the Hebrews' stay in the land. Well, here now we're in the Third Intermediate Period, which spans from 1100 BC to about 525 BC. And during this time, for a lot of it, you actually have two kings ruling in Egypt, one ruling from the city of Thebes in the south, and the other in what the Bible calls Zoan, which is uh, the city of Tanis in the north. And um, here, at about this time, you have the 25th dynasty of Egypt 
begun by a Kushite ruler who ruled Egypt from Kush, ruled the southern uh, portion of Egypt from Kush in the south. Uh, it begins with a king named Pi-Anki, so it's P-I hyphen Ank, right? A-N-H-K-Y. And um, you can look him up if you want. And then of this dynasty is Tirhaka. So that's why it calls him the king of Kush. He's actually commanding an Egyptian army, but he is ruling from Kush, and he is there. So just wanted to, to mention that as a, something that's noteworthy. Um, but yeah, um, we see how this goes, right? Uh, this, um, this deliberation between uh, Hezekiah and uh, his messengers sent to Isaiah and... Um, and 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 basically the 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 king of Assyria is rebuked there in uh, towards the end of chapter thirty seven in that poetic verse there, she despises you, she scorns you, virgin daughter of Zion, she wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem, whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes to the heights? Against the holy one of Israel, that's who. Um, your servants have mocked the, the the Lord with your many chariots on the heights of the mountains. You know, you felled all these cedars of Lebanon, perhaps um, metaphor speaking of the, the lands north of Israel whom he's conquered. Um, I dug wells, I drank waters, I dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Like, you're so proud, right? And um, But really, you are just, as Isaiah calls him elsewhere, the axe in my hand. Have you not heard that I planned all of this long ago? I determined it long ago from the days of old, what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities into heaps of ruins, right? Like, so, um, and it's essentially for their pride, for their, for their, uh, what they understand themselves to be doing and what they are doing, that God will ultimately judge them. And we see that at the end of the uh, portion of Scripture today, which again, we've seen already twice, so I'm not rehearsing it beat for beat, but the um, Assyrian army is then killed by the angel of the Lord in the field outside of Jerusalem, 185,000 of them. Sennacherib returns to his own land and is killed by two of his sons, and that is where we leave off in Isaiah today. All right, let's go now to Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So here we have more of Paul's biography. And remember, all of this is kind of in service of the idea that he got his gospel from God and not from man. Uh, but as we see today, it's not as if there's zero input from man, because what he wants to do now is he wants to say, I got this from God, and by the way, it's in line with what the other apostles teach. So he says, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Now, uh, if we're trying to work out a chronology of Paul's life, which can be a little bit uh, a little bit complicated, there's some question as to what does he mean by after 14 years? Does he mean uh, after four, 14 years after he, he left uh, Damascus, 14 years after the 15-day stay in Jerusalem he mentioned in chapter 1, verse 18? Um it's prob he probably means the thing that makes most sense with the overall chronology of Paul's life is that that's after 14 years from his conversion, his conversion, which probably took place within a year or so of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So uh, after 14 years from his conversion, he goes up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking uh, Titus along 
with me, he says. So Paul, Barnabas, Titus, perhaps others, and uh, Titus's significance will become clear in a second here. Um, Barnabas, of course, being a very important co-worker of Paul. And um, this is interesting here because he says he goes up to Jerusalem because of a revelation. And I don't know if we can know this um, 100%, but I think it's interesting that Paul um, seems to be alluding here to something that Luke tells us about in the book of Acts. So in in Acts um, chapter 11, verse 27 through 30, it says that in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, which is where Paul is at this point. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place, we're told, during the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And again, we can't know this for certain, but this is indeed the second visit to Jerusalem that Luke recounts, just like this is the second visit that Paul recounts. You've got Barnabas here mentioned. You don't have Titus mentioned, in all fairness. Uh, but then um, also, it's it notice that it happens in response to something that a prophet tells them is going to happen, that there's a famine and they're bringing relief. So this is actually the first time Paul brings relief to Jerusalem his collection that he talks about in uh, some of his other other letters like Romans and 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians for that matter is a second collection he's bringing for the saints in Jerusalem. And um, so I think it's interesting in particular that like you have the correspondence here between one of Paul's letters and uh, what you have in Acts, but it's not such a perfect tight correspondence that it's like Paul sitting down with a copy of Acts, like, like, all right, what did I do now? No, like, and, and it's clearly not Luke using Galatians as a source because it's told so differently. They're told so, the, the accounts are told so differently. They're different enough from one another. They can show that they're not dependent on one another, but they seem to be alluding to the similar thing. Another interesting aspect of this is that this famine that is occurring during this time seems to be alluded to in one of Josephus's works, Josephus being a Jewish historian from the first century, prolific writer. And in one of his books, The Antiquities of the Jews, in chapter 20, um, uh, what we call it, uh, uh, book, sorry, book 20, chapter 2, um, section 5, you can read that online if you want, talks about how the king's mother, Helena, goes up to Jerusalem, um, and it's it's during this time, during this reign of Claudius, and um, it says that her coming was a very great advantage to the people of Jerusalem, for whereas a famine did oppress them at that time, and many people died for want of what was necessary to produce food withal, Queen Helena sent some of her servants to Alexandria with money to buy a great quantity of corn and others to them of Cyprus, bring car- cargo of dried figs. So it seems to be another correspondence that the famine that Luke tells us about that Paul uh, perhaps alludes to here is um, also attested to in an extra biblical source. So, um, but Paul's, Paul's purpose for coming in Galatians, he doesn't talk about the relief that he brought Um, But he does talk about how he took this opportunity to go and set this uh, this gospel that he has been proclaiming now for 14 years. 
keep in mind, Paul is not a uh, seasoned missionary at this point. It's not, it's it's 14 years since his conversion before Paul really starts up his missionary activity. He is a passionate proclaimer of Jesus uh, from what we can see, but there's a lot of time maybe working out his theology, dialoguing with his Jewish friends and family and everything, um, living in uh, relative obscurity for a while before he kind of gets pulled out and sent off by Antioch to start planting churches throughout Asia Minor. Um, so he says that he came in and set that gospel that he's been proclaiming now for these years among the Gentiles, um, right? Because he's he's um, he's he's been in Antioch. He's he's come from the church in Antioch. Um, Barnabas has now called him there, and he's been working among them in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Um, am I? So it's interesting, right? Because he he sees it as from God. But he also cares a lot about being in conformity to the other apostles, almost in submission to them, right? Like, clearly not dependent on them, but wanting to be of one mind and and making sure that what he is proclaiming is in line with what they indeed proclaim, maybe even checking them out a little bit as well. Um, but it says, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Now, that comes a little bit out of the left field um, in Galatians because we haven't really gotten into his discourse about works of the law and circumcision and stuff like that yet, but this is important. So Titus is—this uh, is the same Titus to whom the book of Titus is written. Um, he is a Gentile uh, believer in Jesus. He is, he is a Greek, and so he's uncircumcised. And one of the big issues in Galatians, very similar, perhaps we could say, to the what the Jerusalem Council dealt with in, in uh, Acts chapter 15, um, Galatians is very concerned with um, uh, teaching Gentile—Paul is very concerned with influential Jewish leaders, either in the church or outside the church, coming in and telling Gentiles that if they really want to be part of this Messianic family— they need to be circumcised, because after all, that is the sign that was given to Abraham for all his offspring. Anyone in the household of Abraham needs to be circumcised. But here Paul is saying, here I, I came to Jerusalem with a, a Christian Greek with me, and nobody suggested circumcision to him. Okay, so that's his first kind of shot against this in the book of Galatians. And he says, even though there were some there, it wasn't an oversight either, right? Because there were some who were of that opinion. So there are some false brothers secretly brought in. We don't really, he said, he calls them, he, like they're sneaky. They slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Okay. So again, um, looking at the the way he he looks towards this, what we might call Judaizing teaching. Okay, we so it's not because people just forgot to mention it that Titus wasn't compelled. No, the other apostles were behind me in this. To them, we did not yield in submission for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So he sees this as a gospel issue. And for those who seem to be influential, and here we get kind of classic Paul, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality, so... You know, it's not like I was so impressed. Ooh, you're an apostle, which is kind of <laughs> kind of interesting, right? Um, 
Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. They didn't say, oh, your gospel's good, but you're forgetting, uh, you really need to be keeping the feast days. You really need to be teaching people to observe food laws, right? They're, they're adding nothing to the gospel. On the contrary, when they saw that I'd been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, to the uncircumcised, right? Because Paul does, he, he, he is a missionary to the Jewish people, but specifically now he's really having a lot of fruit, seeing a lot of fruit among the Gentiles, just as Peter has been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. So there is Peter doing his work in Jerusalem, right? Uh, because the same God who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised also worked through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, so that would be James, the brother of Jesus, who is apparently the elder, the head uh, shepherd of the church in Jerusalem, and uh, and Cephas, that's that's Peter, and John, okay, so that would be John, son of Zebedee, who seemed to be pillars. So these seem to be kind of like the, the heads among them, even among the other apostles. So we don't know how many other apostles were in the city at this time. Um, that when they perceived the grace that was given to me, the grace that is his ministry, his proclamation of the gospel, they gave me the right hand of fellowship and to Barnabas that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. There's Paul kind of maybe tipping his hat to the reason why he's in Jerusalem, at least one of the reasons to bring relief there. Um, but yeah, they've received their blessing. So the other apostles, so not only is my gospel from God, it is also in complete conformity with what James, the brother of Jesus, Cephas, and John also teach. All right, everybody, that's it for today. Thanks for being with me. As always, I look forward to being with you tomorrow. And until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.